Man, y'all are looking great today. Thank you so much for being here. Um, hey, can I, can I tell y'all something that just gets on my last nerve? Yeah, y'all ever have something just get, I mean, not just get on it, but I mean, kind of, you know, just, hey, you know, we're singing that song. What a beautiful name it is, right? The name of Jesus. Man, how, what a powerful name it is. You know, something just gets on my last nerve is when people try to make God something he's not. When we, instead of accepting we are created in the image of God, we try to make God in our own image. It always amazes me some of the screwy ideas people have about God. So when people say things like, well, my Jesus would never. As if we get to control what Jesus does, right? Or, well, the way I see Jesus is. Like, like we get to invent our own Jesus. Or people say things like, I just believe that Jesus works this way. Or I prefer to think of Jesus like this. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like going to one of those Build-A-Bear places, but instead of building a bear, we just build our own Jesus. Oh, I'm gonna make him like this and warm and cuddly and he, because my Jesus, is how my Jesus is. Hey, Jesus is the Lord God Almighty. We don't get to say anything about who he is. He is who he is. Our job is just to worship who he is because the bottom line is it doesn't matter how we like to see God. God is who he is. And there's only one God, that's the God of the Bible. And I'm gonna tell you something, man. We don't get to manufacture our own God, right? He is who he is. I mean, it'd be like, I mean, what if I found out that Jenny, when she would talk to her friends who don't know me, that she would describe me like this. Oh yeah, uh, Steve, my husband, he's 6'3". He's got wavy, dark hair. He's all jacked up. He's a hard body. He loves watching Hallmark movies with me. His idea of the perfect date is to take me to Target and walk up and down every aisle, look at everything for hours. Now, what if I find out she describes me that way? What, what if my five, eight memory foam body, bald head, I mean, what if I find out that she has to reshape me into something she thinks is a lot better for her and that her friends would find, you know, more attractive? So if I found that, how, how do you think I'd feel? I'd probably think, you really think, you really think that about me? I mean, I would think. No, I wouldn't feel that way. You, you what I think. Why, why would you do that? Am I not enough who I really am? See, so many people who claim the name of Jesus, so many people who embrace Jesus, who loves everyone, they love that part about him, but those same people are a little embarrassed 
to admit to their friends that they believe in the Jesus who loves everyone, but also the Holy One. Jesus who is the Holy One, the one who on judgment day will send people to hell forever. We better be careful about trying to manufacture our own God because God is God. And you know what? Just like I wouldn't like Jenny kind of redefining who I am, God feels very strongly. How, How do we know that? Because fortunately, God told us exactly how he feels about us trying to redefine him or manufacture our own God. So in Exodus chapter 20, uh, where the whole Ten Commandments are listed, um, so the first commandment just says, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm first, you don't worship any other, that's just how it is. Then the second commandment is, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or in the the earth beneath or in the water under the earth, for you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we, we really don't think of ourselves as carving something up and setting it up on the mantle and worshiping it. But you know what we do? We just try to recreate the God of the Bible to make him more palatable for us so he can be the God that we think he should be. Better be careful. God is a jealous God. And it's an insult to God when we try to reshape him into who we think he should be. So when God just gets sideways with our life or something about the Bible or something about God's character, you know, kind of gets sideways with the way we're actually living, and we just say, oh, well, I don't think God cares about that. Be careful. I love what Carl Barth said. He said, if our God never contradicts us or confuses us, or makes us mad, then we are likely not worshiping him, but a reflection of ourselves. Whoa. So there was a time in the life of Moses uh, when God introduced himself to him in a very powerful way. You know, when we think about Moses, uh, we tend to think Moses, uh, we, we, in our minds, you know, we, we go from the Nile River all the way to the burning bush. And we miss the biggest parts of his life. So when Moses, you you remember the story in the Bible, Pharaoh was killing babies. And so Moses' mom, because he was trying to kill all the male children, put him in a little basket, sent him down the Nile River to save his life. And that basket, guided by the hand of God, lands at the house of Pharaoh's sister. And she takes Moses and raises him as her own. He he was raised in the palace of the Pharaoh. He was schooled in the temple of the sun, the best education on planet earth at the time. He he was given everything anyone could have. In fact, uh, Josephus, uh, the, the Hebrew historian, 
said that he would have been the next Pharaoh. I mean, when people saw Moses coming, they said, bow the knee, bow the knee, Moses is coming. He had that kind of authority. He had that kind of life. And then one day God just starts messing with him. God ever mess with you? God just started messing with him. God started changing his heart. And he said, it's wrong the way we're treating those Hebrews. So he sees an Egyptian being really harsh with a couple Hebrews one day. He kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Now he's thinking this is going to give him a real favor with the Hebrews. But they said, oh, you going to kill us like you killed him? Oh, man, then Moses starts thinking, somebody's going to find out what in the world's going to happen. And sure enough, here's what happened. Exodus chapter 2, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. (laughs) Raised in the golden halls of Pharaoh. Now you're just sitting by a dirty well out in the middle of the desert. Ever been there? You ever been by the well? In that place where what you thought God was going to do, he didn't do. And life just feels like something. Something's wrong. I mean... What what am I doing here? How did I get here? So not only did Moses, who was 40 years old, when he left Egypt, sat down by a well. So he's 40 years old, enjoying all the best the riches of Egypt had to offer. Now he's just sitting by a well. And Moses spends the next 40 years in the desert, herding sheep. I mean, schooled in the temple of the sun, learned all the hieroglyphics that Egypt could teach him. (laughs) Now, he's by the well. Nobody cares about his hieroglyphics. Now, the most intelligent conversation he has all day is, God had a plan, though. And God had to prepare him for all he wanted to do. And sometimes, and sometimes you got to go to the desert. You got to go to the lonely place. You got to go to the hard place for God to prepare you for all that he wants in your life. So Moses just out there uh, herding sheep. Now he's 80 years old. Just herding the sheep. But one day he sees something. He just looks up on the side of a hill and and there's a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up. Now, now, for me and you, we hear that, we go, oh, that's cool, but you know, whatever. I mean, look, we could recreate that in our living room with LED lights, right? I mean, mean, we could, uh, whatever, man, it's a light show, man. But no, this was a real fire. It was a real fire from God and the bush didn't burn up 
So Moses approaches the bush and God speaks to him. And he says something. Here's what he said. Take off your shoes for you're walking on holy ground. Isn't it interesting? The very first thing God says to Moses is, I am a holy God. I'm not like everybody else you know. I am all-powerful, almighty. I am holy. Take your shoes off. You don't get to walk on my ground the way you walk around in everyday life. So Moses does. Mm. So God says to Moses, I got a plan. Here's the plan. I've heard the cries of my people. You're going to be the leader. I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and you're going to set my people free. And so Moses, first he argues with God a little bit and says, well, I can't. I'm not a very good speaker, and I don't know what to do. How am I going to do him? You know? And then finally he says, well, who, who do I even say sent me? I'm going to show up and say, well, God sent me. They're going to say, well, who? What's his name? Here's what God said to Moses. Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. You see, God's saying, I am, it's a... The ever-present one, the one who is always right now. I am always from everlasting to everlasting. God says, I am always all-powerful. I am always all-knowing. I am always all-loving. I am always completely holy. I am always full of grace and full of truth. God says to Moses, I am the great I am. Hmm. But the great I am is not just a a title God gives himself. He's not, I am always powerful, but far away. You, You see, the great I am speaks into the greatest needs and the most broken parts of our life in the most intimate ways. When God said, I am, I'm right there for you. I am always with you. I am, not I was, not I'm going to be, but I am right here, right now, and I will always be the I am for you. And then after that, all through the rest of the Old Testament, you get this picture of God being the great I am. So when Israel was wounded and sick because of their sin, every name reflected the great I am. When Israel was wounded because of their sin, God said, I am Jehovah Rapha. I am your healer. So when Isaiah wasn't sure that his life would even be spared, when he wasn't sure he could even go on, God said, I am Jehovah Sabbath. I am your provider. 
When David felt lost and confused, God said, I am Jehovah Ra. I am your shepherd. When Ezekiel felt scared and alone, God said, I am Jehovah Shammah. I am forever the present one. When Abraham was faced with an impossible situation and it seemed like there was no way out, God said, I am Jehovah Jireh. I am the God who provides. Then, then the ancient of days, the Lord God Almighty, the great I am, demonstrated his love, his incredible love for us by leaving the glory of heaven. And the great I am became a baby. And the great I am lived a sinless life. And the great I am took on a new name, Jesus. And he did all of that to die on the cross for our sin. And in doing so, he became our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord. And he was given the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. That's who he is. He is the great I am. And then, in John's gospel, just to prove the point of the power of his name, I am. John said in John chapter 20, verse 30, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in the book, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Mm. So today, we're going to start a brand new series called Jesus, I Am, and in the Gospel of John, Jesus said seven times, I am something very specific. And these things that Jesus give us, these names, these seven I am statements, speak with intimacy into the most broken parts of our life. So for seven weeks, we're going to look at every one of these statements. Today, we're going to start with Jesus, I am the door. John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, by the way, um, when you see that in the Bible, truly or truly, truly, the, the Greek word for truly means is, is amen. You, you know, so when we say amen, all right, give me an amen. amen. All right, so when we say amen, it means I agree. Let it be so. It means yes, that's true. So when you hear something true and you say amen, that's why we say that. So Jesus said, amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. 
But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. All right, so that needs a little explanation. Um, So in the first century in Judea, this was a very common um, sight, shepherds and sheep, because uh, they didn't have any sophisticated textiles like we do. If you were going to have clothes, it was made out of wool, and the wool came from the sheep. So sheep were very um, expensive, and it was a great uh, source of revenue because, um, I mean, they didn't eat them necessarily like, they didn't raise them for food. They did sometimes, but they didn't raise them for food. They raised them. The value in the sheep was the wool. And so they would take them out to feed in pastures during the day. Then at night, the shepherds would take them to a sheepfold, which was, um, you know, think of a corral, um, a stone corral, stone walls about this high, all the way around, and, and there would be an opening, and the opening was the door. And so when they brought them back, because, you know, during the day out in the pasture, they, they could see things, protect the sheep, but at night, that became very difficult, and the sheep were really valuable, so they protected them at night by bringing them into sheepfolds. And often, several uh, shepherds would get together and bring several flocks into one sheepfold. And then uh, they would hire a gatekeeper to kind of just be there at the gate so they don't get out and so somebody don't try to steal them. So you get that picture. Um, The sheep hear my voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them. And when he brought out his, all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice, and a stranger they will not follow, but they will f- uh, flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying then, because he's talking about himself. And, and so it was a very common thing. Uh, several shepherds would get together, guard their sheep in one big sheepfold, one big Pen. But the next morning when they take them back out the pasture, one shepherd would go this way, one that way, and they would just call to their sheep. And those sheep know their shepherd's voice, and they follow them. I mean, it's a pretty incredible thing to see, really. But sheep knew their shepherd's voice. and they, So Jesus is saying, they didn't get this. You know why? Because I'm talking about me. And they don't understand me. Verse 7 says, so Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So who was it who came before Jesus? All those religious leaders who were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel, but they were all about themselves. They didn't care about the sheep, so the sheep didn't know their voice. Therefore, they didn't follow them. And Jesus said, all who came before me, man, they... They weren't real. Verse 9 says, look what Jesus says. I am the door. There's our first statement. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go out, go in and out and find pasture. Jesus said, I am, I am the way to be saved. And when you know my voice and follow me, I'm going to meet all your needs. Then verse 10, here's a real famous kind of verse. 
The thief, that was Satan who was behind those religious leaders, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Powerful words. So let's think about, um, let's talk about what, what does it mean for Jesus to be the door? He said, I am, that's the God statement. Then Jesus says, I am the door. So what are some characteristics of doors that really help us understand this? Well, here's the first thing. Doors give comfort. You know, there's something about closing a door and turning that lock that makes us feel, you know, safe, right? I mean, I'm telling you something, Jenny is all about locking the doors. In fact, she locks the doors every time. I mean, our doors are never not locked. Sometimes I'll, I'm going to go out and work in the yard, and if she goes somewhere, I don't have any keys. I can't even get in the house. She locks the doors when I'm outside. This, this happens so much. We'll go to bed. We'll be laying there, getting ready to go to sleep. And Jenny will say, hey, babe. And I'm thinking, hey, babe. <laughs> she says, did you lock the door? Yeah, sometimes I got to get out of bed and go lock the door. I mean, it's a big deal. Why? Because locking a door gives us comfort. Jesus said, I am the door. He is the one who comforts our soul. Psalm 94, 18 says, I cried out. I am slipping, but your unfailing love, O Lord, supported me. When doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope. Acts 9, 31 says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplying. Didn't that seem like an odd combination? How can you live in fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Because those things go perfectly together because we understand who God is and we live in awe of who he is. But we also know he's the source of our comfort. And Jesus said, I'm the comforter of your soul. I am the door. Here's another thing a door does. The door gives us direction. Um, you see a door, what do you know? That's where you go in, right? I mean, you see a building, there's the door, that's where I go in. You see a house, there's a door, that's where I go in. Door, in fact, doors send such a powerful message of direction, this is where you go in, that sometimes we ignore everything else. See, all those doors in the back of the worship center, on the other side of the door, there's great big red signs that say, do not enter. Then there's an arrow that says, go enter in. Because when you open those doors and close them, open them and close them, it gets very distracting in here, right? So we say, do not enter. But the image of the door that says, enter me, is so powerful. People have a sign this big right in their face and they ignore it. It got to be so bad, we fix the doors so you can't open them from the outside, right? He said, yeah, we'll, we'll take care of that problem. We'll just fix the door so they can't open. Now you would think people would go, huh, don't read the sign. Oh, I see, I know what to do. No, 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 that's not what y'all do. <laughs> you, you know what y'all do? You go, huh, huh, 
Go find somebody and say, the door doesn't work. No, the door works fine. Read the sign. Because doors send such a powerful message of direction. We don't pay attention to anything else. Jesus, our door, you know what he wants to do? He wants to direct our lives. So when we, when we go through the door of Jesus, he says, I want you to know how to live as married people. I want you to know how to live as my child in this world. I want to direct your life in all kinds of ways. I want to show you how, how to handle your money in a way that honors me. I want to show you how to deal with the relationship in your life in a way that honors me. I want it to direct your life. When Jesus is our door, hmm, man, our life works. But here's the thing. Jesus is in the only door. You can go through doors that will direct you in all the wrong ways and ruin your life. Huh. Jesus sees how easily it is for us, how easy it is for us to just mess up our lives. So he says, come this way. I'm the door. Enter this door and I'll direct your life. Here's another thing doors do. Doors give protection. You know, physical doors can protect us, but Jesus, our door, protects us in ways physical doors just can't. Um, when the kids were little, I think Stephen was still probably, couldn't walk yet, and Sarah was a was a toddler. Um, Jenny was over at Belk's at the mall. Remember when the mall used to actually function as a mall and there was actually stores there? Well, one of the stores was Belk and Jenny was over there and she was leaving. And so she's holding Stephen. She's got Sarah by the hand and she's walking out to the car and she get, just kind of feels like somebody's behind her and she turns around and this guy's walking up to him. And so she goes a little faster and he gets faster. She takes off running. He takes off running. She opens the door throws the kids in, slams the door, boom, locks it. As soon as she locks it, that guy's jerking on the door handle. Physical doors can protect us. She drives home. She's all upset. She tells me. So I just pick up my 357 Magnum, go to Belks. <laughs> and I can't find them anywhere. By the way, you know, 357 Magnum will protect you too, just like a physical door. <laughs> And I, so I thought, well, I can't find him anywhere. Probably a good thing, or else I'd be having a prison ministry right now. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> physical doors can protect us, but Jesus, our door, protects us in ways physical doors can't. That's why Psalm 3 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. What a powerful picture where we're down. When is your head down? When you're depressed, when you're hurting, and you are down. And then God just says, I am a shield about you. I'm the one who lifts your head. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to provide what you need. What a powerful picture. Jesus, our door 
protects us. Here, here's another thing a door does. A door offers salvation. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. You know, when we die, we're all going to enter one of two doors. One door leads to hell forever. One door and the only door, Jesus, that leads to eternal life. So maybe today, maybe today, I've been, I've been praying this. Maybe today will be the day you enter the door that leads to salvation in Jesus Christ. I hope you do. Mm. Here's another thing. Doors force a decision. See, we live in a world, listen to this. We live in a world that embraces tolerance at the cost of truth. I mean, it sounds nice and warm and fuzzy to say, well, what's true for me may not be true for you, and what's true for you may not be true for me. But eventually, you know, that logic just kind of breaks down. For instance, let's say somebody comes to you and says, hey, uh, can I borrow $100? And you say, okay, you know, you're my friend. So you give him 20, 40, 60, 80, 100. You give him five $20 bills. He says, I'll pay back Tuesday. Okay, great. Shows up Tuesday, pulls out five $1 bills. One, two, three, four, five. Thank you for helping me. There you go. See, because in my mind, a $1 bill is just as true to be 20 as a $20 bill. Then you usually say, well, you know, I'm going to change what you believe. (laughs) Because it's not the same thing. Just because you believe something doesn't mean it's true, right? So it sounds nice to say there are many doors that lead to heaven. Just be a sincere good person. The problem is that's categorically false. If that's true, why did Jesus die? I mean, you think God would send his son, die on a cross, if there was some other way? No. See, a door forces a decision. Somebody knocks on your door, you got to make a decision, right? Am I going to let them in or not let them in? But the door forced a decision you got to make. When I was in the fifth grade, I'll never forget this, um, fifth grade boys Sunday school class at Prairie Creek Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Had a wonderful a uh, man who just loved those fifth grade boys, loved us. I mean, it impacted my life. But you probably had a Sunday school teacher like that in your life sometime. And we had this picture that hung on the wall of uh, the Sunday school room. And it was a picture of Jesus standing in front of a door. And he's knocking. And I remember he, he, uh, he pointed us to that picture. He said, now, what's missing? It's a real famous painting. We all get, I have no window. I don't know what. And so we guessed. But finally, he said, there's no handle. There's no doorknob. It's, it's a picture of Revelation 3.20 that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus talking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Huh. You see, when Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, there's no doorknob. He's just knocking. The door is a picture of your heart. 
And Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm not going to kick the door in. I'm going to force my way in. The knock must be answered. And he says, if anyone, this invitation is for everyone, hears my voice, that's the Holy Spirit dealing in, and opens the door, that's an act of faith, I will come in and eat with you and he with me. Doors force a decision. To stand before the door, Jesus, and make no decision is a decision to stay outside of salvation. Not making a decision is a decision because Jesus, the door, forces a decision. One more thing, we're done. Doors create separation. And doors separate the inside from the outside, families from outsider, controlled weather inside the house, the harsh weather outside. But Jesus, the door, separates far more. Matthew 10. Don't imagine that I come to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, Jesus said, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. That is a big deal. I have a good friend. His name's Timothy Abraham. He's an Egyptian man. He was a Muslim imam. He taught in the mosque in Egypt and he got to be friends with American pastor ultimately he became a follower of Jesus Christ he went home and told his mom I've become a follower of Jesus a few minutes later she told the right people they drug him out of his mother's home beat him trying to kill him he barely escaped with his life made his way to the United States Went to seminary, does ministry now to win Muslims to Jesus. But he said this to me one time. He said, a couple times a year, my mom will call me from Egypt and say, Timothy, please come home. And I'm sorry. I love you. I want to see you. But he said, Steve, I know she's lying. And I know she's trying to set me up. So if I go, they'll kill me. Wow. Jesus said, don't think I've come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm going to divide families. Now, Jesus obviously wasn't saying hate your family when you have to love your father and mother. If you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your kids more than me, you're not worthy of me. He's not saying hate your family. He's just, you know, the Bible says so much about how we love and nurture our family and our kids. And our... Jesus is simply saying... There are going to be times when following me separates families and I have to be first. Now, usually it's not as extreme as in Timothy's case, but there are believers and unbelievers in the same house. There's a separation. 
And Jesus is saying, I got to be first. So you have kids and who could care less about Jesus. You love them. You try to win them to Jesus. But you can't compromise Jesus for the sake of your kids. If you have a parent who doesn't know Jesus, you're trying to live for Jesus. You can't compromise Jesus for the sake of the parents. Jesus had to be first, and he said, I'm going to bring a sword, and this door separates. So I want to close, but I want to ask you to do something. I want you to just stand to your feet and close your eyes. I want you to just bow your heads, and, and I want to talk to two different groups of folks right now. First, maybe God's doing something in you right now. And you know Jesus is the door, and anyone who walks through him is saved. And maybe that's you right now. And here's what I want you to do. If you can say, Steve, God's been stirring me up, and I know he's knocking and I know it's time, and I've been putting this off, and God's been stirring me, and, but now is the time, and I know it. I want you to do something for me right now. If that's you, just as earnestly as you can from your heart to God, can you say, Jesus, I believe you. I believe you are the door that I have to go through to be saved, to not go to hell. And I believe you have this great plan for me, Lord, and I, I'm trusting you right now. I believe you died my death on the cross. I believe you bore my sin on the cross. And I believe three days later, you rose again. And right now, you're right here. And you're offering me a gift of eternal life. And Jesus, I want you to know right now, I'm accepting your gift of eternal life. If that's you, and you just ask Jesus to save you, I want you to just step out of your seat. Just come forward. There's some folks down here at the front. Just step out of your seat. Come down here and just take, take one of them by the hand and just say, I just asked Jesus to save me. Just come right now. Who can say, yeah, Jesus saved me today? Just slip out of your seat. Come right now. We'll wait for you. Come on. Who can say that? Just come right now. Here's a second group of people I want to talk to. Maybe you can say, yes, Jesus, I am a believer. <laughs> and I have put my faith in you, the great I am. But... If I'm being honest, I'm not letting you direct my life. And I've tried to reshape you a little bit just to match what I want so I can live a certain way or ignore certain commands. And, and Jesus, it's time to let you direct my life. So as a believer, if you can say, yes, I need Jesus to direct my life. I need to make some changes. And I'm walking through that door right now. Why don't you just step out of your seat? Why don't you come down here and find a place at the altar and just say, Jesus, I want you to direct my life. My life's not right. I'm saved. But there are things I need to change. Just come on right now. Who can say yes? There are things I need to change in my life. That's right. Come on. Who else? Come on. Who can say I need to get the relationships in my life right. I need to get the marriage right. I need to have a better relationship with my kids. Just come on right now. That's right. Praise the Lord. Who can say, yes, Jesus, I need you to direct my life. Just come on. That's right. Who else? Just come on. We'll wait on you. God is good. 
And he wants to direct you in a way that's going to benefit you because he wants you to have life and he wants you to have life more abundantly. That's right. Come on. Just keep coming. Praise the Lord. That's great. Praise the Lord. Come on. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. You just pour your heart out to God. God, direct me. God, I want you to be my Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. You know, God's listening. He knows everything. And he wants to help you in the most broken, intimate parts of your life. He wants to help you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful, Lord, for all you're doing in our lives. God, we believe you are the great I am. And we don't get to change you, God. It's you who changes us. So God, mold us, shape us exactly into the person or people you want us to be, God. We're trusting you. And we love you. And we pray in the name of the great I am, the Lord Jesus. Amen.